This morning, the reading from Samuel grabs my attention. There are a couple of things that jump out at me. Samuel covers a wild time in the history of Israel, a time of transition from a sort of loose and weak federation into a unified people with a unified leader. Samuel tells us that story, an origin story. Now, we generally prefer origin stories that flatter us and denigrate everyone else. In the U.S., our received origin stories focus on things like the Declaration of Independence and the midnight ride of Paul Revere and gloss over things like slavery and the Tuskegee study. Who, after all, wants to tell stories in which they look bad? But the writers of the Hebrew scripture don't seem to have gotten that memo. They, we want Disney princes. Samuel is more Game of Thrones. <laughs> now, just to be clear, when it comes to growth and insight, Walt Disney is not particularly helpful. It would be nice to think that in First and Second Samuel, we're dealing with very old, very stable texts. The stories are thousands of years old, therefore nothing can have changed in thousands of years. But that isn't true. For only about 500 years, the notion of two books of Samuel has been pretty common. But Jerem's Vulgate, based on Greek texts, gives us four kingdoms combining Samuel and kings. In the most ancient Hebrew texts available, there is but one book, and recently unearthed documents at Qumran fill in gaps in the ancient record. So the text of Samuel in the new revised standard version of scripture is a bit longer than its older sibling, the revised standard version. Scripture is more dynamic than we may want to believe, and that is as it should be. Scripture teaches us about a living God, a dynamic God. Why is the book of Samuel catching my fancy today? Well, it can be argued that Samuel is telling us early stories about forming a system of government. And not just that, but in a very primitive sense, about self-government. It is the people who demand a king. God gives in and makes Saul king, with Samuel on hand to anoint him. That's we pick up the story today when God has come to regret that decision. God asks Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Now keep in mind, Saul is still very much alive. He's just a terrible king. He's ruthless, paranoid, greedy, violent, and mentally ill. We will meet similar rulers with similar falls, faults throughout scripture, especially when we get to the time of Jesus. And it would be wonderful to think that our modern world, such leaders have been banished. But you don't have to search too hard to find leaders who are ruthless, corrupt, paranoid, destructive, and mentally unstable. God is fed up with Saul. God had such high hopes for Saul, but the illusion of Saul is shattered. I've heard some followers of Jesus defending objectively terrible leaders by suggesting that in scripture, God works through terribly flawed people, and so the quality of the leader doesn't matter. That may be true, God may work through Saul, but God does not leave him in office. 
God sends Samuel off to get the next king. This is risky for Samuel, as Saul is not going to go quietly. Desperately hanging on to power is characteristic of despotic rulers. Peaceful transition of power is in our origin story, but it was not in anybody's story back then. Samuel is off to Bethlehem, full of apprehension, but faithful to God. This is not the last time that Bethlehem will figure in our story. In Bethlehem, nobody is happy to see Samuel. Saul's paranoia has infected his people. Nonetheless, we meet Jesse, an honorable man with many sons. One of the sons is destined to be the next king, but which one? Samuel is charged with anointing God's chosen one. So the family comes together with all the sons in attendance. Well, almost all the sons. When Samuel sees the first son, he is certain that he's seeing the chosen one. This son is tall, good looking. He looks the part in Samuel's mind. But Samuel is wrong. Looks can be deceiving. The description that we hear of the number one son is really an echo of the description of Saul before he became king. We're cautioned not to look on appearance or height. God looks at the heart. Is this a lesson for us or for God, who after all chose Saul? And so we proceed through the sons one by one, and not one of them is chosen. It's beginning to look like a washout when Samuel asks if, by chance, there is another son. This must be a bit of an ego blow for the first seven. But yes, there is one more, the youngest, the one who no one takes seriously. He is so unlikely that he has been left in the field tending animals. In he comes, and much to everybody's shock, he is the chosen one. When Samuel sees the first son, he sees a leader because of his appearance, and we're told to look beyond appearance. But when David comes in, we get this almost erotic description of how good-looking he is, with ruddy complexion and beautiful eyes and handsome. If looks are not important, why are we being told how good-looking he is? Now, I'm just guessing, but I suspect what we're really being told is that David looks young. His ruddy complexion is only visible because he has no beard. When David kills Goliath in a few chapters, he's described as little more than a boy. We also know that as David's story unfolds, <clears throat> his physical attractiveness will be important, especially to Jonathan. Still, the important thing right now is that Samuel anoints him. Fast forward a few thousand years. What in this story, what is this story telling us? <clears throat> it seems to be telling us that we need good leadership. We may not need a king, but we need something. Poor, dishonest, or insane leadership is ungodly. We have some role to play in having good leadership and some responsibility if we have bad leadership. The most beguiling leader may not be what we need. The most statesmanlike figure may not be the best choice. What is in someone's heart is what we should be most concerned with. And that is a hard thing to know. And I just point out that our modern system of election in the United States, driven by boatloads of money and hours of negative advertising, 
seems designed to obscure what might be in someone's heart. Samuel, the prophet, has a vital role in the leadership of Israel, but he is not a leader. Saul and David, after all, are anointed by Samuel. In our modern times, we have largely pushed the church out of the government, and that isn't all bad. Faithful living is a matter of choice, not of legislation. The excesses of religious leaders in the colonial era in the United States sold folks on the idea of secular government. But as one of our friends in South Africa likes to observe, anybody who thinks politics and religion shouldn't mix does not understand religion. The essential lesson from the story of Saul and David is that the proper role of Samuel is that of prophet, not king. As the church, however you define that, approaches our modern political world, the proper role is prophet, not ruler. I'm thinking of folks like Desmond Tutu and Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day and Pauli Murray. The task of a prophet is to speak truth to power, not to sit in the seat of power. The task is neither popular nor fun, but without a prophet, without a vision, as Proverb tells us, the people perish. Without a prophet, Israel cannot get rid of a terrible king and cannot have a good one. Today, without a strong prophetic voice, our governments across the planet seem to be at best lazy and ineffective, at worst corrupt and in service to the rich and powerful at the expense of the poor, of the folks that Jesus is most concerned with. Matthew and Luke are at great pains to draw a solid line from David, whom we've just met, to Jesus. This is partly to enhance the perception of Jesus. David is one of the greatest leaders that Israel has ever known. But I wonder if there isn't a second connection to be noted. I think there may be a similar line from Samuel to the church. Throughout history, there are times when the church has failed to find its prophetic voice. Too often the church, not all of it but parts, has used its voice to prop up terrible governments. The church has had a sorry role in the Crusades. The church had no small part in supporting the apartheid regime in South Africa. The church helped the government of Canada in terrible crimes against the First Nations peoples. In the U.S., the church was complicit in slavery, and even today much of the church is silent in the face of racism that shreds the very fabric of our society. And that's nowhere near a full list. So, how long will we mourn Saul? How long will we delay before we find our prophetic voice, our Samuel voice, and speak the truth that needs to be spoken? How long until we can no longer ignore Dr. King who reminds us that justice delayed is justice denied, knowing that God's love is justice. Samuel does not tell us about a fairy tale world, but rather a real world with a vast display of ugliness. But with God's love and in God's name, we have the ability to heal and to transform that ugliness, not just the ability, but the responsibility. The vocation of the church, in part, 
is to use its voice.